so, so yesterday I was uh, I was at a birthday party. Um, my uh, my nephew just turned three last weekend, and uh, I, I I speak uh, for for my entire family, and, and when I say that my nephews are objectively the cutest humans on the planet, um, they are also the best behaved. No, I'm kidding. Uh, they, they, my my nephews, they're they're great, and uh, they never ever, you know, have that experience where you know mom and dad ask them to do something and they don't want to do it. They're, they're now, of course, they do. Um, I I think we've all experienced that where we see kids, or or maybe you were that kid that you know, uh, you know, mom and dad say you know go clean your room, and you're like, do I have to? I don't I don't I don't want to do that. <laughs> And, and you kind of you go you go to clean your room and you know you know you shove all the stuff under the bed or you shove it into the closet and you go okay I'm done and then mom and dad come and inspect it and they're like what what's all this under the bed and, and so we, we we've all experienced that we've all seen that um, or or probably you know at some point in our lives we we've been that kid that that has that I that attitude of like oh, I don't I don't wanna why do I have to and. and we, we see this as well in other people's stories. And we've been talking for the past couple of weeks about uh, the book of Jonah. We've been, uh, we've been going through his story and, and seeing, uh, seeing how he reacts to, to God and what God calls him to do. And, and this morning we're going we're gonna to look at this and, and we're going to see this passage where Jonah kind of, he, he does and he, he goes and he does the thing that God asks him to do, but he's kind of like, do I, do I have to? Like, do I, do I really have to? And, and he kind of goes through it and, as he does it, he's maybe not the best at it. So uh, if you haven't been with us for the past couple of weeks uh, and, and you want to catch up, we do have our, our messages online, so you can check that out on our website. Um, but just as a, a quick recap, um, one of the things that I've been kind of basing this, uh, this series off of is uh, I had a professor in Bible college who said, there's no such thing as a failure in ministry because you can always be used as a bad example. And, and Jonah is kind of the prototype for that, where he's, uh, he's not a great example of, of what we're supposed to do. Uh, he, we've talked about him being the, the disobedient prophet and uh, the, uh, the self-centered prophet. And this morning, we're going to talk about him being the, the begrudging prophet. He's not exactly a, a good example of what we are supposed to do. Uh, and as we've been looking through the story, we've also been talking about uh, how the story is a satire. And Again, it, it's not designed for us to, to identify necessarily with the, uh, or, or follow the example of the, the protagonist of the story, uh, but we kind of have this protagonist that is held up as this, uh, this strange example that causes us to examine ourselves to see uh, where some of our own needs and, and failures are. So, uh, so we see in this satire that it holds up a mirror in which we see ourselves. Uh, so uh, before we jump in, just as, as always, if you have any comments or questions uh, about this morning's message, feel free to, uh, on your tablet or if you can't reach one or if somebody's hogging it, uh, on your phone, go to promisechurch.community and in the today's message section, you can uh, fill out any comments or questions along the way. So this morning we're going to jump in, we're going to read uh, Jonah chapter 3. Uh, and uh, like I said before as well, uh, if, you, uh, if you're following along, I, I encourage you to read this, uh, the, the chapter, or the, sorry, the book. Uh, it's four chapters long, only takes a couple minutes to read, uh, and uh, we'll be better prepared to come in and hear what God's speaking to us. So Jonah chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah, 
the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So God, this morning we, uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way you speak to us through, uh, through your word, through, through the stories that people have written down, through, uh, through your word presented through human hands. Uh, and how that still speaks to us today, words that were written thousands of years ago. Uh, and, and God, we thank you, and, and we open ourselves to, to hear and to learn from your word this morning. So speak to us what you want. In Jesus' name, amen. So we finally see, after, after all this time, so uh, if you're not familiar with the story, um, Jonah gets the, the call of God to go to preach to the city of Nineveh, and, and he goes, nope, and goes the opposite direction. Uh, and that does not go well for him. He gets caught uh, in a storm on a, on a ship. He gets thrown off the ship. Uh, he gets swallowed by a giant fish, uh, which later on spits him up. And then finally, he goes, and he actually does what God asked him to do. He goes to the city of Nineveh. We're finally there. Uh, this whole time that we've been, we've been building up to this, we get to the city of Nineveh. Now, if, I, I had no idea about this until uh, a, a little while ago, but Nineveh is actually a very important city, not just for uh, the, the Old Testament, not just for the, the, the Israelites, but it's also an important city for Christianity, for the history, history of Christianity and for, for us today. And, and go, okay, how does that work? Now, uh, so Jonah likely preached somewhere between uh, the years 782 and 753 BC, somewhere in there, um, because he, we know he preached during the reign of uh, Jeroboam, and, and so that's when Jeroboam was king. So we know that's approximately when he, uh, he would have preached to the city of Nineveh. Um, and uh, we see the city, and it actually, later on, as you know, we, we see in the passage here, God relents, he doesn't uh, overthrow the city, but eventually it does get overthrown. About 150 years later, um, in the year 612, Nineveh falls, so 612 BC. Now, why is that important? So, we see here, uh, if you look at this little, little, little chart here, this is kind of charting uh, the, the history of the, the empires of the world. So it starts with Egypt, uh, or not necessarily the, the, the empires of the world, but the empires that we see uh, in the Bible throughout the Old Testament. 
So first we get Egypt, and Egypt is a world power for a long time, and then uh, throughout the Bible we see the, uh, the Assyrians are constantly oppressing the Israelites, and then after that the Babylonians, after that the Persians, and then uh, the Romans in the, in the New Testament. And so we, we see all of these, these major empires that throughout the, the Bible, we hear these stories of, you know, they were overthrown by the Assyrians, or the Assyrians came and they captured this city. But the Assyrian Empire actually fell very quickly, um, within the period of a couple of years, and, and actually disappeared almost, uh, almost overnight. And, and the, the Assyrian Empire actually disappeared so quickly that it fell into the realm of myth, that people uh, believed that Nineveh, and, and possibly even the entire Assyrian Empire, never actually existed, because we didn't have any, any evidence that it, that it did. Uh, and so when, when the Assyrian Empire fell, it was because uh, there was a period of civil war within the empire, and they were fighting with each other, and that, uh, that weakened the empire to the point that uh, a number of smaller nations that had been oppressed by the Assyrians uh, gathered together, formed a coalition, and rose up against the Assyrians, and finally overthrew the Assyrian Empire. And the main player in that coalition was Babylon. And uh, so once, uh, once you see the Assyrians fall, uh, the main, uh, the main foil, the main enemy of the, uh, of of the Israelite people becomes the Babylonians. Uh, so that's kind of how that all fits in in the story of the Old Testament. So, how do we know this? We know Nineveh was captured incredibly quickly and and abandoned. So, from the time that the the walls of the city were breached to the time that the city was completely abandoned, was likely only a couple of days. So we, uh, when we when we look at it, the, the things like libraries and, and, um, and places of cultural significance, all of those were, were left intact. But places of, of cultural significance, um, places with, you know, lots of, or sorry, not cultural significance, places of monetary value were all, uh, were all sacked. They were all destroyed. And, um, the, you know, there were unburied skeletons in the streets. All of these things that kind of point to the fact that this was very quickly attacked, all the things of value were taken, and then it was just abandoned. Um, so the Babylonians, when they took over, they didn't really want the city of Nineveh, but it was one of those things where we don't want this, but we can't leave it the way it is, because then they might rise up against us again. And So they had to destroy it, or they had to conquer it. So they conquered it, sacked, uh, sacked all the good stuff, and then just left, abandoned it, didn't repopulate the city, didn't take it over. So what was left of the Assyrian population fled the city, uh, but that remnant wasn't significant enough to kind of move back in and, and repopulate and maintain the city. So city becomes abandoned and lost to history. So we get to this point there that later on, fast forwarding through history, we get to the 1800s, and there's uh, a rising sense of, of skepticism of the Bible and Christianity, and, and it's this, this period of uh, the Enlightenment where people are questioning, uh, questioning God, questioning Christianity, and we don't know where Assyria is. A and that was one of the, the big criticisms, is that if this story is true, if the, if the Bible is real, where is this empire that we hear about throughout the entire Old Testament? Nobody knows where it was. And so there was this, uh, this guy that he's like, you know what, I bet I could find it. A and he kind of cobbles together um, stories from the Bible, 
historical records that kind of point to like, okay, maybe it was here. Uh, and he actually just goes out into the desert, goes, uh, he takes a map, he thinks, I, goes, I think it's here, finds that spot, goes out into the desert, and just starts digging. Uh, his name was Austin Henry Laird. Uh, and uh, he, he looked in the distance, he saw some tells, which uh, if you don't know, um, they're a certain kind of hill that you find in, in desert, uh, desert climates where there are ruins underneath where sand blows and the, the winds pick up the sand and the, the sand will actually form uh, a hill because it blows up against a ruin and the sand obviously stops and it just builds this specific type of hill. And so he sees these two tells in the distance and he goes, I think that's it. Uh, and he goes and he starts digging and lo and behold, he finds the city of Nineveh. He finds this lost city. It was almost, it almost had this, uh, this feeling of like the city of Atlantis where it was lost, disappeared overnight, nobody knows where it is. Uh, and and it just becomes like this myth, but he actually found the city of Assyria, or sorry, the city of Nineveh. Uh, and so through this, he does a whole bunch of excavation, uh, pulls out a whole bunch of um, of artifacts, and brings them back to uh, brings them back to England, which is where he was from. And uh, they end up. You can actually still see some of these things. There are uh, these giant statues uh, that you can see in the British Museum that actually came out of the city of Nineveh. So. We find he he finds this and, and and we now know like this is where the city of Nineveh was and he and it kind of finding the city of Nineveh became this important thing for the history of Christianity because it's one of the things that helped Christianity weather the skepticism of of the 1800s. So that's why it's an important city to us, even though it's you know kind of this city we hear of in in this one story and, and we don't necessarily think a lot about. And I I just when I found that out I was like that's fascinating. I never thought of it that way. Um, now, unfortunately, uh, a lot of what was actually left has now uh, been destroyed. Uh, if you remember a, a couple of years ago, the um, when ISIS was around, as they were kind of on their last legs, as the as the uh, the coalition that was fighting against them was was pushing them back, um, and, and you might remember they were saying like, you know, stay away. If you cross this line, we are going to destroy these monuments. That was Nineveh. That's where they fell back to, and as they were, um, as they were being, uh, as the coalition forces were coming and, and rooting out the last of, of the ISIS fighters, they were actually bulldozing and uh, blowing up different monuments within the city of Nineveh. You can actually see pictures where there was a gate that was being restored, was being rebuilt, uh, and now it's completely destroyed. Uh, and so it's it's so unfortunate that this this very important city this uh, this place with so much history is now uh, a lot of it is lost and it's so unfortunate. But again, uh, one of the the benefits of, of what uh, Laird found was that he he brought a lot of those artifacts back out. Uh, and you know I guess one of the very few plus sides of you know, British colonialism is they took a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, but that means it's actually preserved and we can actually still see it. So. Uh, but that's you know that's a side note. So uh, so that's why this this city is is so important to us. Now, uh, as we've talked about in this series before, we we see we see a lot of people in this story that that don't act the way we expect them to. There's there's this character, the, this Jonah guy that that this whole story revolves around, and. Uh, 
he, he doesn't always do the things that we expect him to. He doesn't do, uh, it doesn't act the way we think he, d he should. He doesn't act the way that we, we typically think that a prophet would. And um, as I talked about last week, we see this, this ABAB structure uh, of the book of Jonah where in the first chapter and the third chapter, we see his interactions with uh, non-Israelite people. And with the sailors, he didn't really uh, do a whole lot for them. He, he didn't, you know, there was no prayers for the sailors. There was no uh, willingness to, to admit his own wrong until he was found out, until the lot fell on him. Uh, he didn't really do a whole lot for them. And, and it's kind of the same thing here, where we see the, this childish attitude in Jonah, where he, he, he knows what God is asking him to do. He knows God is asking him to go to Nineveh and to preach to the city, but he has this attitude where he's like, do I have to? <sighs> okay, fine, I'll, I'll go do it. And, and last week we talked about how, you know, at the end of his prayer, he says, God, I'm going to go do what you said. I'm going to go fulfill the vow that I, I promised to you. And then now we actually see his true attitude. We see how he actually goes about it. And we see how he preaches to the city. And we see his message, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. It's an eight-word sermon. Actually, in Hebrew, it's five words. So I, I mean, I wish that some days I could get away with that. Just, you know, five-word sermon, we're done, you can all go home. I'm sure sometimes some of, uh, some of us have been sitting in sermons wishing they could be five words long. Uh, but, uh, you know... He, he says this sermon that's, that's just five words. He's doing the bare minimum. He, he's kind of going, okay, like, it, it's the equivalent of saying, like, go clean your room, and he just, like, shoves all the stuff under the bed. Like, just do it as quickly as possible, get it over with, and get out of here. And somehow it works. Uh, comparing, comparing the book of, of Jonah, comparing what he preached to, again, uh, I talked about Nahum a couple of weeks ago. It's another... He's another prophet that went, uh, went to the city of Nineveh, and, and there's three chapters here, and all of it is just this, this sermon, this preaching uh, against the city of Nineveh and, and calling out that it's going to be destroyed and, and all of these things, and it's, and it's three chapters of what he said. But, Nineveh, but Jonah goes to Nineveh in just five-word sermon. The bare minimum he could possibly do. Doesn't mention, uh, he doesn't mention, you know, what the Ninevites did that was so bad. He doesn't mention how to respond. He doesn't mention who's going to overturn them. Doesn't even mention God. Just says, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Does the bare minimum we could possibly do. But somehow, it works. A and the things that we, again, the thing that we don't expect is the pagan Ninevites, the ones that are painted as the enemy, as the ones that are, are so bad and so evil, they repent. They turn to God and, and, and do what God wants them to do. And once again in this story, we see this, this upside-down nature of the story where, uh, where nobody acts the way that we expect them to. And, and the pagans, the Ninevites, they're the ones that respond to God. They're more responsive to God than God's own prophet. And, and this would be a, a very interesting story for for the Israelite people. Because, again, I in this weird way where nobody acts the way we expect them to, 
the, the example to follow here isn't Jonah. The example to follow is the Ninevites. And, and this would have been just a, a wild thing for the Israelite people because we're not supposed to act like the pagans. Why are, why are they the ones that are uh, almost the heroes of this story? So it was a, a very interesting thing for them. And, it, and there's this stark contrast between the responses of, of Jonah, the prophet, and, and the Ninevite people. So we've got the, the begrudging prophet who, you know, he's like, okay, fine, I'll, I'll do what you ask. But he, but he does the bare minimum. And then we see the people who, who he's called to preach to. And, and they're the ones that respond. Uh, they respond immediately. None of this, you know, waffling, none of this, you know, going the other direction. No, it's right away they respond. Word gets to the king, and right away he responds. Uh, and again, in this story, it's not just the, the people, not just the Ninevites that we see do this. It's all throughout the story, there are, there are people in the story, characters in the story that are more responsive than God's own prophet. There, are, there were the sailors in chapter 1 that respond immediately. There's the fish in chapter 2 that responds immediately. And, and we see this contrast throughout the story again and again of the ones that we don't expect to respond to God do, while the prophet, the one that, we, that should be the shining example in this story, he's the one that doesn't respond. That He's the one that doesn't respond well, and when he does respond, doesn't do a good job of it. And so... In this story, again, we're, we're called to examine ourselves. We're called to, uh, as we look at the, in the mirror of this satire, we're, we're called to see where we fit in this story. Are we more like the, the begrudging prophet? Or are we like the responsive pagans? What, what, is, what attitude do we have towards, towards God in, in the things that he's... Uh, he's calling us into and the things that he's calling us out of. So when God calls us into something, when God calls us to, to talk to people, when God calls us to, to share and to reach out beyond the four walls of our, of our church, do, do we say, okay, I, I, I don't understand, or maybe I'm, I'm scared, but yes, I'll go. I'm going to do what you ask. Or do we respond like the prophet we see here and go, do I, do I have to? Okay, if, if I have to, I'll go do it. And we drag our heels. How do we respond? And when, when, we, when we look at the flip side of that, when, God, when we know that there's something that God is c- calling us out of, when we know that there's something, like perhaps it's, it's a sin that God's called out in you, or, or it's something that God's calling you to, to give up. How do we respond to that? Do we respond, again, like, like the prophet saying, oh, do I have to, and drag our heels? Or do we respond like the Ninevites and say, yes, God, the thing that you're calling me out of, I will, I will get that out of my life with your help. And then we see, again, throughout this story, we see one of the, the major themes is that we see God's compassion throughout this story. And, and the obvious one here is that, uh, that God spares the Ninevites, the, this, this city that had come up before God uh, as this evil place that the, the people needed to hear uh, of what the destruction that was coming. It's spared. Uh, the city, like I said, is eventually overthrown about 150 years later. But it, it takes that time. God spares them on this occasion. 
And God is, God's quick to spare them. When, when we read this story, we, we see that they, uh, they turn from their ways. They r- immediately respond. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. God shows mercy and compassion on, on the people, on the Ninevites. And, and, and we see that in ourselves as well. God is waiting to show compassion and mercy on us when we turn from the things that God is calling out of us. And, and so again, I, I ask the question, is our response going to be like that of the Ninevites? Are we going to respond to the things that God's calling us out of and say, yes, I will turn from that way? God is quick to show his compassion. And again, throughout the story, we see God continues to use Jonah throughout uh, throughout this story, throughout the, the, the disobedience, throughout the, the self-centeredness, throughout the begrudging reluctance. God continues to, to use Jonah and say, like, even though you are not acting the way that, I, that I'm asking you to, even though you're not uh, being faithful to, to everything that I've called you to do, I will still continue to use you. And the good news for us today is that God continues to use us, even when we are reluctant, even when we drag our heels, even when we, you know, do the bare minimum, when we, you know, just shove the mess under the bed. God continues to use us. God continues to show his compassion and mercy on us. So this morning we're going to see, do we have any, uh, if there are any messages this morning. Is it fair to completely look at Jonah uh, Jonah's story as a failure instead of commending him for many of the things he did do in light of his hesitance. Uh, for example, acknowledging that he was the cause of the storm and that the sailors should throw him off or actually preaching to the Ninevites in the end. Yes, we should commend him for, for the things that he did get right. Um, they are few and far between. Um, he, he does eventually get it right, but uh, throughout the story we see uh, how the times that he does get it right, the times that he uh, he finally says, like, okay, yeah, I'm the, I'm the guy that is the cause of this storm. It's after the, the lot falls on him. He could have up front sa- been up front and said, like, yeah, it's me. Sorry, I'm, I'm the reason, guys. Uh, but he didn't. It wasn't until he kind of got caught that he, uh, he, he said, yeah, it's me. Uh, and going to the Ninevites and, and preaching in the end, yes, absolutely, we need to commend him that he he got there, he preached the word, and God did what God wanted to do through that. Uh, but it was after he got thrown off the boat. It was after he spent the three days in the fish. It was after uh, after he kind of did all of the wrong things and, and got all of that out of the way first that um, if he had just gone and done it God's way in the first place, this would have been a very different story. So yes, he does... Uh, he does get things right, but uh, a lot of the times it's after he gets them very, very wrong. Um, let's take a look here. Uh, I have so been Jonah. I want to do the will of God, but because of my own insecurities, I made excuses to not do what I was meant to do. God is super patient with me and knows that eventually, and knows eventually that I will do it. God has and will use everything for a benefit, both good and bad, because we love God. Jonah's proof that God can choose flawed people to reach other flawed people. Know that you matter to God and that you, ha- that you all have a purpose bigger than yourself, all for his glory. Absolutely. 
when we look at this story, when we see the flawed prophet, when we see ourselves in this story and recognize that we have, uh, we have our weaknesses, we have our flaws, and God continues to use us, this is exactly it. God uses flawed people to reach other flawed people. That is absolutely one of the key themes of this story, and we don't have to have it all together. We don't have to be the perfect person. We don't have to uh, have all the right answers all the time in order to go and do the good things that God has called us to do. God uses us despite our failures, despite our weaknesses, and all the more is God's glory shown through that, that God gets the glory because I'm not perfect. I don't get it right all the time. But when God continues to use me, when God continues to use us, it is his glory that is shown because we are the ones that are imperfect. Uh, and, and that's one of the beautiful things about this. And if God used Jonah's unwillingness to accomplish so much, imagine how he could use our heartfelt willingness. Absolutely, I was just uh, talking about that, that if Jonah had gone and done things right the first time, how different this story would be. Uh, and I mentioned this in the, the first message, but it's, it's so much better to... Uh, when we know what God is calling us to do, when we know the things that God's calling us into, when we know the things that God's calling us out of, uh, to respond immediately, to respond in the way that God's asking us to, goes a lot better than if we try and do things our own way, if we try and uh, try and make it, try and make it our own way, and and, and not do the things that God wants us to do, goes a lot better for us if we just go for it, if we do the things that God wants us to do. So God, this morning we thank you. We thank you that despite our brokenness and our, our flawed nature, that we are imperfect people, that you still use us for your purposes, that you still act through us, that you still speak through us. And, and in our weakness, you show your strength. You show your power. And you show, above all, your compassion and your mercy on us and on our community, on the people that you have called us to. So God, we thank you. We thank you for, uh, for giving us examples, both good and bad, of how we are to respond to you. And as we reflect on the things that you have asked us to do, on the things that you're calling us into, God, we, we respond. And we say, yes. I will go do what you want me to do. And God, we, we ask your forgiveness for the times that we try to do it in a bare minimum, dragging our heels kind of way. God, we thank you that you still use us, even though sometimes we try and get away with the least amount of effort. We thank you that you still use that. You still shine through us in those moments. So God, we, we open ourselves that whatever you are asking for us, for us to do, for the things you're calling us into, for the things you're calling us out of, God, we respond with willing hearts this morning. And we say yes to all the things that you are calling us to. In Jesus' name, amen.